workers don't unionize because they want to leave. If they wanted to leave, they would have left. They want to unionize because they want to stay. And by wanting to stay, they don't want the business to fail. If anything, they want it to grow, right? Because that ultimately means there's more opportunity for them. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Jamie White. Jamie is founder and head of a company called Unit, where he's building a platform to help workers unionize to improve their workplaces. We had a very good conversation about Jamie's interest in making things, his time at MIT, and how he came to create medical products in his previous company. We talked about why he's moved into the labor and technology space. His company, Unit, provides online resources for workers looking to unionize that guide and empower those workers through the process. Jamie is pursuing really an interesting new angle on organizing in the workplace. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Jamie White of Unit. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Jamie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yes. So Jamie Earl White, he, they. I grew up in Texas in the middle of nowhere, very high in- income inequality, kind of class divide there between ranchers and you know people that lived in, in town. And that gave me an original appreciation for you know how equity affects society in positive or negative ways. Going off to MIT, I love making things. I've always loved making things. But I also took some economic development classes. And that's when I first learned about like big U word, uh, union. And ultimately, though, didn't have a chance to see it in action until after I graduated. So I graduated with an engineering degree. It was a mix of electrical, software, and mechanical, very maker degree. And in grad school, I got the opportunity during the Occupy movement to volunteer with the SEIU in a Justice for Janitors campaign. Living in the dorms at MIT, we were close with the janitors. I knew lots of students who were close with the janitors. So activating that group to get out there, protest on their behalf. And ultimately, they won some things out of that campaign, which gave me an early appreciation for the power of unions but also an appreciation for how low-tech the, the environment was and how much work it can be to actually get out there and show that power. At the time, I considered myself just a technologist. So I went to work as CTO for a new medical device company. At that point, learned a lot about startups and creating a business and eventually learned more about the business side of that business towards the second half of that startup. And as I did that, I realized two things. A, I didn't want to work in medical devices anymore. Selling to pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies is not very fun and often doesn't feel super ethical. The second thing I realized is there had been white papers on tech in unionism. A few of them were written by the Century Foundation and a few written in other kind of popular publications. And... That really started the the fire in me to look into this more. Those publications were not complete in some ways naive because they were weren't based in any actual technologies that were being used at the time. So after I quit my job and was thinking about what to do next, I probably interviewed 
you know, 50 to 100 worker, worker organizers, professional labor organizers, and some labor leadership. And ultimately trying to create an image for what a future could look like with more tech in labor organizing. The idea and the vision that came out of the other side of that was UNIT, which I got started on early 2020, uh, just before the pandemic hit. I'm going to back up a little bit and ask you a little bit more just out of curiosity about some of the steps along the way. I think of myself also as someone who likes to make things. Where do you think that comes from with you? What's the source of that? Where do you get going on that as a kid, I guess? I remember at one point, uh, my parents asked me like what I wanted for Christmas or something to this, this nature. And I said, anything with batteries. The idea at the time and something that comes from a completely different place, I believe, than kind of this equality or equity mindset is this seeing things come to life, right? Seeing things made of simple rules or simple parts come to life in a beautiful way. And I think a lot of the the art that I'm interested in is also in that direction. I would say when that meets this other passion of mine, which is equity, justice, uh, and solving injustice where we can, I think that's where it comes together to want to create things, new things that address those problems. I remember other kids had remote control cars. I never got one. And I was like, there was something about being able to control something from afar that attracted me. And then I got an Apple II computer, so I'm a lot older than you, or my family did. And that was like, to me, the ultimate remote control device, because you could tell it what to do. And then later it would do it. And I think that got me going. My parents at a young age had a computer in the household that I think one of their companies had bought them. Also very old at the time, like just pre-AOL, but like right at right at the beginning of AOL timeframe. I think I was six or seven, but it had BBS software, the bulletin board system software on there that you could dial into. And as a kid, I was like blown away by that this was even a thing. I didn't understand it completely, but I knew I could like, talk to people on the other side of the world through this thing and like see the weather and weird stuff like that. That was extremely exciting to me at like age seven. I was in MIT as a PhD candidate. And I know that there's a lot of people there who are of that sort that, that like to experiment, to make things. Tell me a little about your experience there. Cause it's a different place. It's a different place. Yeah. I would say it's, not always a friendly place, I, I would say, from the MIT institutional standpoint. You know, I think the admin has like done some huge percentage increase over the last 10 years, which I know a lot of people are opposed to. But the, the, the environment when I was there was certainly, if you want it to be a rewarding experience for you, you have to seek that out, right? And there were advisors, there were people you could go to and ask for how to get to these uh, different parts of MIT to take advantage of. But I also knew people that got very depressed going there. I think for a lot of people, it's also the first time maybe if they came from a smaller place that they come to terms that they maybe aren't the best in their microcosm of what they do. And then maybe the first time they got a B in a class in their life, right? And so, so I think that on a lot of very high achieving people that can have a crazy effect. I think for me, coming from a population 1000 town, it was all very much still over the course of my four years was all very much just kind of awe inspiring and, you know, getting that opportunity to be around that. And, you know, I am fairly good at seeking out things that are interesting to me. So I'd say it was a very rewarding experience for me, but certainly not guaranteed to be that for other people that go there. And I, I felt that pretty hard. You know, I had friends that were depressed or dropped out or other things that weren't great. One of the things that's in the culture, not all over MIT, but a lot, is companies coming out of the research that's done. 
to what extent were you exposed to that or was the medical device stuff that you ultimately went to part of what you were doing there? How did that part of it work for you? So in grad school, I was working with Ian Hunter in the bioinstrumentation lab, which was in the MECI department, but it was kind of split between bio and electrical and MECI and a few other things. Ian called it a very renaissance type lab. And the project I was working on was electric Lorentz force actuated jet injectors. Uh, so simply, you know, a, a linear motor, a piston that drives liquid fast enough that it pierces the skin and injects medication under the skin with no needle. And this technology was exciting to me because it was in the medical space. It used like multiple areas of, of skill sets that I could bring together. But ultimately, I realized, you know, from the process that the whole lab was going through, the translation process to get this out there was kind of a decade long situation. It's a fairly invasive device in the sense that it's piercing your skin. There's a lot of safety stuff around that. When I graduated, or actually about a semester before I graduated, me and a friend had an idea that was more in the connected health space, which is typically a much shorter timeline because you're not talking a surgical device or something going into, you're talking more data-driven care. Uh, and so what came out of that is using some of the skills from that lab in terms of uh, sensing, in terms of medical data, uh, I was able to work with my friend to create this product called GoCap, which is a monitor for people using injectable medicine. They keep track of temperature, how much medication you have left, how much you've used, et cetera, and puts that data in your hands so you can share it with your doctors, so you can run analysis on it. There's particularly interesting to two groups, which was people with diabetes who use insulin and the second being people who use fertility hormone. How did that effort go? I would say, you know, in terms of how venture and startup and I would say more financially driven founders go, it was like mild success in the sense that we sold it in the end for stock to a company. And I, I think this is all public now to uh, Bigfoot Biomedical, which is a company that aggregates diabetes data to do data-driven care. And so depending on how their success looks, that's ultimately how the financial success looks there. But I would say in terms of my independent, what I got out of it, you know, this was the first time I had designed a product, you know, not, not by myself, but certainly leading that effort. That process of going from some hacked together breadboard and so, you know, this big surrounding an injector pen to ultimately down the line, right? Having a thousand of these manufactured and seeing diabetes nurse educators, like looking at the data from a patient coming in, seeing how people use it in clinical trials. So we did some clinical trials with the, the Joslin Diabetes Center, seeing how all of that came together, springing out of what this device enabled was one of the most awesome feelings of my life. And I, I think also gets back to that, like creating things and them coming to life. You know what I mean? But this involved a human element that my, my battery operated toys as a kid uh, did not. So seeing that human activity and uh, appreciation grow out of something that I made was made me ecstatic. You were into making the product. Were you into making the company? Were they so entangled that they were, you know, the same thing? How do you think about that difference? They were definitely not entangled at first. So originally when the co-founder I worked on this company with, Richard Wally, and I were, you know, toying around with this in our apartment while I was in grad school, the initial idea was... Hey, you know, Rich has kind of consulted with some some VC firms before. He's a little familiar with this space and raising money. I am very experienced on the tech and creation side of this. So, hey, Rich, I for two years I'm going to join. I'm going to get this made, and then I'm going to take off all the business stuff. You're you're going to run, and then you know, four years later, <laughs> we had a conversation and. What we found is I'm a bit more extroverted 
than, than Rich ultimately. And so as we were going out to sell this thing that was now manufacturable, I ended up taking the lead on that. I had already been working with some of the folks that we were selling to just as we were developing the product. So it wasn't a crazy transition, but ultimately that led to me helping to raise our next round of funding and got me a lot more comfortable with the business side of it. And I think without that, I would not have felt as empowered to start the unit uh, as I did. What did you like and not like about the business side of that company? I loved working with hiring and creating a team and empowering a team and structuring that 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 part of operations which I think a lot of people actually dislike from a founding perspective I love absolutely love that and so as we grew the company to something like 20 people including part-time folks that was made me ecstatic the second thing I love is ultimately the in this case, the, the user of the product, which unfortunately in healthcare is almost always decoupled from the customer. <laughs> in this case, the users of the product, people using insulin and fertility hormone, were just a pleasure to work with all the time. And you'd see people get excited that someone is trying to push forward this area that often doesn't get a lot of love in terms of user-focused solutions. So I would say those are the two things that I liked the most. And then if we go on the other side of things, I liked the least fundraising. I think I got okay at it, just the, the slog of doing it and scheduling it to be as little of a disruption on the company as possible. Uh, but it's not fun. I don't think too many people have fun with that. And this is ultimately why I left because that dynamic would have been great on its own. It just wasn't very fun to sell to pharmaceutical business reps, which is one way we distributed this, and then to work with insurance companies on reimbursement, which was another way we distributed this. All their incentives are largely very financially aligned to the extent they say otherwise feels like this dissonance that's hard to deal with as somebody that comes from a tech background and wants things to be ultra logical. Just the other thing, now comparing it to uh, labor movement conferences is uh, the parties just aren't nearly as fun either. <laughs> Maybe you're moving in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just didn't enjoy that part of it. Ultimately, was okay at it, right? We got a couple of like two, three million dollar deals by the time we sold things, but the uh, the the process wasn't that fun. Not that there aren't amazing people there. Ran across some really amazing people that, to be honest, were also as jaded as me, but wanted to stick around. <laughs> I knew I could work on something else and I knew I had very large interests in labor and education and a number of other topics that I'm passionate about. And so when I took off, I was looking to discover which of those I would ultimately settle on. I'm guessing that as well as you did in school and designing a product like this, that you're decently smart fellow. What would you say you're smart about? And what would you say you're not very smart about? I would say I am smart about, and this is, I think, typical of many engineers. I am smart about analytical topics. I'm smart about using data to make decisions. I'm smart about, you know, even in the human element, collecting feedback to make decisions, uh, kind of understanding what people are interested in, underlying what, what they're actually saying in that way, focusing more on what they do, right, and how they respond. I would say what I'm worse at, and maybe this is why I enjoyed becoming so much better at team building, is the gray area stuff, right? The, the stuff where there is no right decision necessarily. You know, there's not a clear decision, but one needs to be made. Over the course of the second half of that company, I got smarter at that. But I would still say it's one of my weaker points, right? I like to have all the data I need to create a decision. And often in a fast startup environment, you have to just say, we're going to go this way and see if we're right. And we're going to do it fast. And we're going to make that mistake quickly. Because of that bias, I also probably stick to places where 
you don't want to break things fast. <laughs> Medical devices being included in that and labor, you know, being included in that. You don't want people losing their jobs because you, you know, built the security around your union card signatures in a hurry. Bringing those two skills together for me and what I try to do every day is really finding where can we move fast and break things that won't negatively affect the users that we're trying to serve and um, and where can we not, right? Where do we need to be really careful with our decisions? And Even though throughout this interview, you've sort of testified to your interest in equity and unions and and things like that. I still find myself surprised that you made this pivot into this other area. I don't know you. Can you tell me about that, the founding story for the unit stuff and, and what it took to go there? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can tell you because I think it relates back to my, my personal philosophies. At a very small scale, it was easy to appreciate growing up how problems with equity, specifically income inequality in this case, or wealth inequality, leads to not only kind of this, this negative social aspect, right, where you have unrest, you have people that you know, are uh, have worse conditions, which is kind of the obvious point, but you also have negative effects for everyone, right? Whenever you have this unreinforced power dynamic or, you know, unfettered power dynamic, you know, these people are going to church together and they don't have a ton in common in the, in the middle of nowhere. And that creates, you know, really negative feelings for, for a lot of people. It also creates dysfunction, right? You see people that are in a position of poverty within these situations that because you know they can barely afford to keep the the trailer that they that they raise their kids in right they're stuck without being able to to train without being able to get more education to do a number of things that would have ultimately helped this town that I grew up in would have ultimately like increased the local economy if you look at it that way for for the entire area i think there was an early appreciation that in this microcosm inequality created inefficiency and injustice kind of at the same time this twofer and then moving to MIT and studying more about that because i already had this kind of fire ignited i realized that a lot of economists agree that that happens on a very large national scale that the stronger inequality is it actually creates large inefficiencies in the economy and then ultimately, I think more obvious to folks, creates the, the injustices that we see through, through poverty on one side, but also through unfettered wealth on the other side. And so when I think of ways to, to help that, right, to, to try to address that, I feel like largely what that looks like to me is empowering the people that ultimately have those injustices like ingrained in their life in unavoidable ways. I see medical devices, I see, you know, treating diabetes, which often is associated with the higher poverty areas and demographics of our country as one way to do that. And that was certainly a part of that, even coming from like, I'm really interested in this tech, but I wouldn't have done it if it didn't align somewhat with my views. A lot of people from the town I grew up with had diabetes, unsurprisingly. But then ultimately, I think looking at that from a bigger picture than just technology and just like, hey, I can help people that have this one disease. I view unions as something that with increased density in the United States could completely reshape the level of income inequality that we see today on a workplace level in terms of conditions, in terms of negotiating pay, but ultimately in the long term on a, on a societal scale. I can understand then why trying to help unions or help people unionize would be attractive to you. But what's the route to actually deciding on a company and starting a company there? I think this is where really these early white papers kind of got me thinking and it evolved a lot from that. These Century Foundation papers that I that I initially read went into the fact that there are certain problems with labor organizing today, right? There is this problem of 
finding workers that are interested in organizing, which you wouldn't think would be the case, right? But people are used to today, you know, this immediacy and this accessibility of tools and of information that the labor movement today, or at least a lot of it, I believe doesn't address or doesn't appreciate, right? The standard process that someone goes through right now to unionize with most national unions, they go to the website and it has a phone number for their director of organizing. They call that phone number, often leave a message, uh, or they fill out a web form, right, that has a number to call them back at. And ultimately, they have a back and forth over the phone, sometimes for months, while they get that workplace to a status that is hot enough or organized enough for that professional labor organizer to start designating resources and attention to that workplace, which ultimately gets them across the finish line. When I was interviewing a lot of workers about, you know, their experiences unionizing or workers that had not unionized but wanted to uh, about what they were looking for, one of the biggest things was just getting more information sooner, right? There's not a lot of information on the web targeted at people looking to unionize for the first time. That part of this was very clear, right, that there was going to be an educational part. And so that's one thread, right? You start from there. The other thread associated with new workers organizing is um, the process of it, right? People are very afraid that they're going to make a wrong step. And when you ask people, they're like, I don't, I don't know how to get started. I'm afraid I'm going to screw something up. I'm afraid I'm going to get fired, right? Which is a very real fear. Um, and so what we found is one of the things that alleviates fear is giving people a step-by-step process, right? And that's what the software app does, right? You log in and it walks you through, hey, this is the first thing you need to do. You need to find someone you trust to do this with, right? This never happens alone. And ultimately works with you to invite them into the app so that they can collaborate on the app just like you. And then obviously many more steps later to get to negotiations ultimately. So I I think what it looked like to me is just identifying these places where workers, some workers, were underserved by the existing tools and services and offerings that were out there and creating something that combined those into one product. And what excited me about it was that there seemed to be, you know, a contingent of people. There's now a majority or it's around 50% of people say they would vote yes to a union in their workplace, which is much higher in urban areas, 50% the national average. And the number of private companies that are unionized in the U.S. is something like 7%, something fairly low. So knowing that there is this gap, right, of people that want to do this but don't. And so making it easier, making it more accessible to the people that want to do this um, was kind of the no-brainer. And then it was really how. How do you do that? And you raised money to get this going, right? Yes. So in July of 2020, we raised $1.4 million of pre-seed or whatever you want to call it, proof of concept round from Bloomberg Beta as the lead investor and then kind of a host of smaller investors that followed on to their terms. A lot of times the people that have made their money in our capitalist world are not that union friendly. Did you run into challenges because you were on the other side in a certain extent of the labor management divide? Definitely. A hundred percent. For us raising money, one way I I thought of it to be honest was let's get a no early, right? Like in our emails, right? Don't wait for the phone call. Would you ever invest in a company <laughs> that helps people form unions? That was a quick filter, uh, which I would say, you know, one out of three, one out of two uh, investors ultimately like did have a quick no. And then, you know, then somebody that's getting on the phone at least has that in their mind as something interesting. Now, I won't say that the half that do set up a meeting are ultimately behind forming unions, but it certainly helps cut out anti-union investors immediately. Regarding our investors and finding Bloomberg Beta in particular, this happened way, way before we decided to raise money. I was doing interviews second half of 2019, and I think towards that winter, 
we were introduced by another founder who was interested in labor work to Roy at Bloomberg Beta, not in the context of raising money at all, but in the context of Roy being labor supportive and as such, having a lot of contacts in the labor space, having a large network of labor folks that he knew. So he was an initial connector for my interviews, essentially, for my learning. So ultimately, when it did come time to raise money, he was on the short list. And when we decided to close the round, we wanted Bloomberg Beta to be our lead. Roy is you know, publicly extremely pro-union, which has gotten him flack from some of the VC community. Ultimately, though, we view our investors as financial investors. I mean, that's what they are. Um, our impact and the way we structure the company as a public benefit corporation ties our mission, which is empowering workers to organize their places of work with our business, right? Which is ultimately taking a fee from unionized workers that we help run their union. And so by tying those two together, we're saying, hey, if our mission is doing well, our investors are happy. And in a way, that's a more sometimes a more predictable incentive, that financial incentive, than impact incentives, right? And this is one of the reasons we decided to start the company as for-profit, is that when you do raise grants and foundation money, especially two years ago, before unions were in the popular zeitgeist like they are today, there is you know, a, a very real chance that someone funds you one year for starting unions. And then the next year, for whatever reason, depending on their funding, decides that unions aren't their priority anymore. Whereas if you have a financial investor and you're a for-profit and we are accomplishing this mission and growing, ultimately, they have the same incentive forever, which makes them a more predictable investor. Of course, funding is only one of the many threads that one has to weave together to build an enterprise. What's been the main challenges in getting this together and where are you right now? If I had to say, let's do our top three, kind of in the order that they happen. So top one, as you might imagine, is building the product for workers, right? And this is always the hardest thing. It's just getting the product market fit, right? Getting the product where it inspires and guides workers through the organizing process. And that was a huge process of trial and error, right? It ultimately took us a year from getting funded to get to the general product that exists today. We've obviously made a lot of improvements over the last year. But even the basis of where the product is today was only set about a year ago. Um, and once we saw that, we had the two unions that are recognized today sign up and we saw them gaining traction in the software and getting going. And ultimately, it kind of clicks once you reach that point. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't obvious how we should design that product to guide workers through the unionizing process. Number two was, I, am, I come from tech. I come from engineering. I have a strong interest in labor. I have talked to a lot of workers about organizing. I've read a lot of books on organizing. But I have not been a labor organizer for a decade. And Megan has, right? So Megan McRobert is our director of organizing that's now been with UNIT for about a year. And it took us about a year to find Megan. <laughs> I did 40 interviews looking for that right person. The labor movement is full of people who are interested in organizing, but finding that comp combination of you know, experience, willingness to experiment, uh, but also willingness to argue with Jamie when he's doing something stupid on the tech side that, you know, Megan knows won't work on the organizing side. That, that combination is really hard to find. And so I think we got extremely lucky with that. And so I would say, you know, building the team, as always, very hard, but specifically finding that, you know, key director of organizing hire. Um, and then last, just fast forwarding to today, um, our biggest problem, you know, we are seeing something like 20 times as many referrals <laughs> as we did over the same six-month period end of last year. 
that said though, you know, I want a long wait list that we can argue to grow the company very quickly around. I want a long wait list that we can have people organizing in the software and then be, you know, kind of picking from the people that get the farthest in the software so that we can help them really at that like apex of where they need it. And I don't feel like we're there yet, right? I don't feel like we could hire five new labor organizers and take on 500 new workplaces because there aren't that many signed up. So although we're now supporting more workplaces than ever, I want that to go faster. So awareness, referrals, this kind of problem of finding workers where they are, um, that is now our biggest challenge now that I feel like we have a proof of concept. So that's where we're pouring a lot of our time into. I'm certain that people who funded you are asking how big of a market this is. Is it support a sizable company? What's your answer to that? It is a tough answer. I mean, on one side, you have this legally accessible market in a way, right? Which is you have $8.2 trillion of wages in the US. You have about 90% of workers not in any type of union. And typical union dues are 1% to 2%. Now, in reality, when you break it down to urban areas, when you break it down to private workplaces, when at least for now, you take workplaces that are 200 people or under, although we do hope next year to be able to expand that to companies that are, that are 500 people or under, then say, look, you know, we're, we're going to target folks that are on the more progressive side within these within these areas as well, so that it makes the vote easier. You can also take out right-to-work states, although um, one of our first unions is in a right-to-work state, so you never know, we get surprises. Once you do all of that, you get down to something that's more like 200 million a year first kind of beachhead market, if you look at it from startup point of view. And then in terms of looking at private sector unions in the US that you know are feasible for us to organize, you know, 500 people are under, then you're getting to more like a 8 billion, I believe it is, per year market. Um, and so I'd say that's the range, right? From our beachhead to our, to our big business is probably somewhere on the order of 200 million to, to around 8 billion. You're talking about workplaces with fewer than 200 people. What do you think is the smallest enterprise where it makes sense to have a union? Even up to 200, I'm not so sure how appropriate the sort of administrative burden of unionization is. It seems the bigger the company, the more intuitively anyway, it makes sense. What is your theory about the size and the relevance? Maybe something instructive, you know, in that vein would be if I may tell you the story of the unit staff union and the process that they've gone through within UNIT. How big is your staff? We are four, four full-time. <laughs> you're four full-time and you're unionized? We're four full-time and we're unionized. And I, I, can kind of, I can kind of tell you about the administrative burden there. It seems like for you, you got to live by your own principles for sure, right? 100%. And so I'm not not surprised at all that they union, <laughs> but uh, but yes, didn't know what stage it would be at. I didn't know we'd be at four or you know forty before it happened. Tell me the story. The story from my point of view, right? They they can write about their point of view because I don't know what happened behind the scenes. But I get an email one day that has all the staff, all three people CC'd, and it says, "Look, we've all chatted and we unanimously want a union, and we ask that you recognize our union." So at that point, I had a choice. No matter what size of company, I could have said, I don't know, actually, if this is unanimous. And so I want to have a vote. So you know, you need to petition with the NLRB to have a vote here. That's a little silly. I was very sure there was a majority, as I think, to be honest, most management is by the time they get this request, because most unions build up to a solid majority before they ever ask for recognition. But I could have done that. It would have delayed it. It would have cost us legal fees, may have cost the union legal fees, depending on how they approached it, would have taken forever, been a pain in the ass. The other decision that I could make is replying with an email saying, yes, I recognize you guys. 
what date works well for first bargaining session. That's it. That's all you have to do. <laughs> and so don't get me wrong. There are guidelines and rules to follow during these bargaining sessions as they happen down the road, right? These laws are meant to protect against pretty gross kind of injury that one party brings to the bargaining table. And the biggest one of these requirements is just a bargaining good faith, right? And so if during those negotiations, you come to those negotiations in good faith, talking with workers about what they want, seeing how, you know, if people want compensation here versus compensation here, especially if it doesn't, you know, run the company out of money, affect the bottom line, right? These are easy things. There's harder things that are economic in nature, but ultimately, and this is what I tell a lot of managers, workers don't unionize because they want to leave. If they wanted to leave, they would have left. They want to unionize because they want to stay. And by wanting to stay, they don't want the business to fail. If anything, they want it to grow, right? Because that ultimately means there's more opportunity for them. So this is truly a negotiation, right? It's not a strong arm or, or a power grab. So we have had now seven bargaining sessions over the last few months. And each one of these, I, I realize every time I go into it, is stuff that, to be honest, I should have been defining better anyway as we're growing this company. And so if anything, at the early stages where we are, um, it creates no additional burden, right? This is all stuff that we should have been talking about anyway. Half of the stuff should be going in our employee handbook anyway, right? It's around discipline. It's around how we do our holiday structure. It's around these types of things. It has been nothing but a pleasant experience with us. And I know we are probably more collaborative than most workplaces, but I, I do want to highlight the administrative burden is only what the parties make of it. And certainly our advice to unions that we serve is to minimize that as much as possible. Did they raise their sort of stock or share in the enterprise or how have you structured that? You have investors who have a portion, I assume you have considerable ownership. Uh, what do you do in that regard and what has come up? In this way, to date, at least, we've run equity and stock options similar to uh, any venture stage startup. Um, uh, that may, you know, we may decide to do more innovative things in the future there, likely will. But to start off, we had plenty of other challenges. <laughs> so we have a standard stock option plan, right? And then ultimately, as people join the company and as their options uh, begin to expire, we grant new options. We're pretty young. So we're just at the beginning of most of those cycles. Those options are kind of commiserate with compensation and experience. There is one thing that I've done, starting with the healthcare company that I ran, which was to allow people uh, to some extent, right, with some limits, to have a sliding scale of where they want salary compensation and where they want equity compensation. Because ultimately, we can dilute the company with options or we can dilute the company with investment. And I think giving people some agency there is really useful. I have some agency there, right? And I feel like they should too. But otherwise, we don't, we don't do anything unique there to date. You know, if you follow standard practice in what equity you have and what the team has, and you end up building this to a sizable enterprise, you will have a lot more money than your team. That's sort of how this is set up in a standard way. And it it is part of the same system that uh, that you were pointing to of inequality in our society between people doing really well and people not. I've myself benefited from that kind of arrangement. I, I understand and have had many conversations about it. I understand the arguments on on many sides of this. You are the founder, you're the person driving this, your investors are putting in money that they've earned in other ways. How do you think about that in this particular niche where you are like avowedly pursuing a change in society, but also following the standard model? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And first of all, 
Uh, I will say there's one way we are definitely not following the standard model today, and it doesn't mean we won't do more in the future. And I'll get to my share in just a second. But I, I think the first thing to set that stage is that ultimately the exit plan that we have pitched to investors and that we'll continue pitching to investors is that we don't IPO this unless it's only a medium success. We don't sell it um, to, to anybody. We um, do a finance buyout to the union customers that we have. And what that will entail necessarily, right, if we don't want to piss off everyone, but especially the investors that would approve such a deal, it would entail me not selling my stock from day one um, or for a while. So what that would look at look like is non-founder stock, right, getting financed and bought out. You know, we work with, for example, Amalgamated Bank. And one thing that I've already chatted with them a little bit about is at a certain point, could they or they working with more of a venture type lender finance a buyout that the unions then ultimately pay back with the profits of the company until the company is wholly owned by those customers. And ultimately, that brings down their prices a lot or allows them to do other things with those profits, like pour it all into new organizing, for example. And so very excited about that direction to take things. So what that means for whatever my ownership is it will be tied up for quite a bit longer than most people's. We haven't made a decision on where that'll go. For me, with like the amount of crazy work and sleepless nights that go into this, uh, my my kind of minimum thing, if this was massively successful and did kind of arbitrage the income inequality to a great extent, I would be ecstatic about the impact. And I think I would want enough to start the next thing. I think that's that's the biggest thing that would be on my mind and not have to raise venture capital for it. <laughs> How are you doing on the sales front? I mean, you're early in this business. How is the market responding to what you're presenting it? So so I would say two ways, one, one good, one bad. Uh, so the bad, I already told you, that's our biggest challenge, right? I think very early pipeline, I would like to have way more, right? You have a huge number of workers that are interested in unionizing. You have a huge number of people searching for these things day to day and still a tiny fraction. And I don't think the optimal fraction of those are coming to our website, right? So that awareness is key. Although we have hundreds of people coming to the website every day, and then we have somewhere around you know 500 workers that we're helping to get to an organizing state, which is gets us like somewhere like a quarter of the way to, to break even. These things are great, but I for a venture-backed company and for the rate of impact I want to have. I would rather have 100 union wait lists that we're choosing from. So I'd say that's the side of the traction that I feel like is lagging. The side of the traction that's doing really well is unions that come in that are ready to organize, that have passionate leaders, move fast, they're successful, right? So the first two unions that we have that, that were recognized one of them, their boss voluntarily recognized them. It was, you know, relatively easy and low cost, and they, you know, barreled through it amazingly and without any headaches. The NLRB has approved using our style of electronic union cards for their elections. The second workplace, their boss fought extremely hard against their union from the get-go. They pushed it to an NLRB election. The government came. Uh, conducted an election in the workplace. They won it by a landslide. I think it was 23 to three, you know, with something like 10 people not participating. And these are clinicians. So it's somewhat common that their schedule would dissuade them from participating. And then ultimately, now they've gone through their elections, they're going into negotiations. And almost everyone I talked to that's been on the organizing committee or now bargaining committee of these unions has been ecstatic, right? They've, they've said, we're so happy basically that we were able to get these resources from unit. We think we're in a good place. We know what the next steps are, like we feel supported. And so I would say in terms of finding that fit, like we have small number of very passionate customers 
that, you know, ultimately, I think in terms of service agreements signed, we're talking somewhere around 60K ARR. And then ultimately now we're going to be moving up with an order of magnitude more unions that are in the pipeline to an order of magnitude more on that front. I think the other number that I feel pretty comfortable sharing is that it only takes a million, a million and a half ARR for this thing to break even where we can grow slow on our own, which I don't want to do, right? I'd rather this have a big impact fast, but that makes that path possible and reduces our reliance on VC money. Pretty excited about that traction, but I want to solve this big problem of making a ton of people aware of what unit is and, and getting unions and waiting for our help rather than us being more proactive in that effort. When your own staff was working on the idea of unionizing, did they use your own software? <laughs> no. And there's very simple reason why, which is that it's a huge conflict of interest. <laughs> because as now the second in command of the database and the, the code base, I have access to that data to put out fires and help people manage their data when there's any errors in it. And uh, so that would be you know, unfair to them. One thing we have talked about, though, is as their union grows, and as we have more tools for running the um, post-contract phase of a union, which we are building, those may make sense for them to use. And what it would entail is the software folks, which are part of the union, me giving them the license essentially to clone the software just for them to use. And that that is likely what that will look like down the road because people enjoy working on something that affects them directly too. Um, so I can't speak to the union, but I think there's a very high chance that that's what they want to do down the road. You mentioned unions being part of the zeitgeist right now. What has that generated in terms of competition for you? Are you seeing other tools for organizing similarly that you're up against? Are others coming? What do you see? There are tools that have focused on organizing in general that have been around a while, right? So you have things like NGP Van, you have Action Network. And these types of tools are largely made for organizers, right? Not for workers. They interface with workers in various ways. Um, but the primary user is an organizer. And so I would say that's really what we're flipping on its head a little bit, right? Is having workers run the process in the app and the organizers being more like involved in this. So that this is not meant to be diminutive, but more like customer success or customer support. When you look at it that way, I think there's really only one company out there that's doing somewhat in that vein, which is Get Frank. They have a very different business model than us. So Get Frank is looking to sell to national unions where we are looking to serve workers directly. The idea there, right, um, as far as I understand, I don't want to speak for them, is that they would sell to national unions and then national unions would be able to create these worker-driven processes. What we found when looking into that space, because it was something we considered each national union today does things so different than the next. I and mean, this is just by nature of, you know, different industries being much more fragmented than they were in the 1920s. And so given that, it was very hard for us to imagine the economy of scale here um, that would be similar to us going direct. And, you know, it really changes this from this kind of like small business almost non-customized enterprise SaaS product, if you want to use kind of startup terms to explain our product, to this more custom large enterprise. You're making a lot of tweaks per organization, which ultimately drives up the cost a lot. And so that's not bad if you have a large customer base, right? But then the way we looked at it is market size, which we already talked about a little bit, right? You have you know single digit number, of private companies unionized. And so selling into existing labor unions, which already use a significant amount of those dues, you just don't have a very large market to start with. By starting with people that aren't unionized, which is by far the lion's share, uh, I think that 
brings kind of faster and maybe more impactful both to the workers and to the growth, financial growth of the company, which allows us to reinvest. It's better in those aspects for us. So, so that's the route we choose. Uh, I'm glad there are multiple people working on this, um, partially because it makes me feel like I'm not crazy and partially because I think the labor movement needs more of this innovation and it needs to be normalized that people are trying to innovate in this space. Yeah. And for people who are interested in the Frank, I interviewed Logan recently. They can see that a few podcasts back. I'm assuming that if you uh, do well with the current product that you'll want to expand it, what what other sort of long-term aspirations do you have for providing tools and other benefits to the same group that you're working to get in with right now? I think my super long-term vision here, right, is that once you're once you're even talking a fraction of a percentage of that 90% of of non-unionized workers and you know if you can even get single digit percentage points there you're talking you know a billion dollars of new dues per year right you're talking millions of members that means that on average everyone will know somebody that is in a union that is associated with the unit. And once you have that kind of network effect of scale that kicks in, you can do some really cool things. The first really cool thing that you can do as as you get any scale is portable benefits, private portable benefits, especially. So you have your four person company like we do. We don't get a great deal on, on health insurance, as you might imagine. And so with, you know, with three people in a union, they can't do that either. But if you can create a portable benefits fund for tens of thousands of workers, even at the very low end of this, and a million plus being extremely exciting, you can negotiate for way better deals on that that kind of translate to better deals ultimately for those workers and for the businesses that they're a part of, right? So kind of subsuming some of these benefits that right now employers pay for, putting those in the hands of the workers, in an ultimate like win-win scenario, everybody's paying less. I think that's great. So very excited about that. The other thing I'm excited about bringing to this is recruiting. So right now with Union Density How It Is, really the trade unions are the only places where you have this uh, kind of union hall type effect, um, which is largely you know remote now. I'm not saying there's an actual. Well, there are actual union halls, but just not the majority. But I want, you know, a job. I'm a longshoreman. I'm helping with moving cargo at the, at the port. I'm trained in doing that. The union can actually help place me uh, in a job there. But when you look at, for example, the other extreme there, you look at white collar workers in nonprofits in New York, which actually is a somewhat unionized area, you know, fairly high comparatively union density. It is not super easy for me to, you know, be placed in some way or another, you know, have some kind of prioritized application to a union workplace, which I think with the right training and credentials and standardization across some workplaces, you could start to do that, right? You could start to have your union vouch for you in addition to your resume, and you could have employers that often, you know, and especially in low unemployment environments are having trouble finding workers. This allows them to use the fact and allows their unionized workplace to use the fact that they're unionized to attract more workers through a placement system like this. So excited about portable benefits, excited about recruiting, and then the more traditional things here, right? Just excited about once you have this density of unions, these independent unions can work together to do things that they could not do apart, right? Um, just very quick example of this to end with. The first union that won an NLRB election with UNIT, Piedmont Health Services Providers United, which is in North Carolina, right to work, super low density state. They could not find help elsewhere. They are one of 40-ish federally qualified health centers 
which are kind of like government-funded community health centers in North Carolina, partially government-funded. And those health centers all had a lot of the same issues, right? And so now that this workplace is unionized, we're using that to kind of inspire the other FQHCs that are in North Carolina to follow them. Once they hit a critical mass of those, they can really change the shape of what community health looks like in North Carolina, right? Which all of these doctors are excited to pr- provide better patient care. That is really where I get wake up in the morning, get super excited is, can we really bring large numbers of workers together from these small components that previously were hard to organize to make really big change in the workplace environment today? Well, you're on an interesting path. Good to talk to you about it. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? Hmm, let's see, let's see. I think one question that even we are still answering is how and why workers themselves decide to unionize independently versus with a national union. So UNIT, in general, fully supportive of any way workers want to organize themselves, right? Workers want to organize themselves that work for the government. Um, There are people who want to outlaw that. We do not, (laughs) right? I I think workers should have the, the freedom to assemble and organize in whatever capacity they want to. And with that, some workers want to organize with national unions, some want to organize with public unions, but a growing number that we've seen want to organize as independent unions, right? They want this this governing unit, right, to be their workplace. Doesn't mean they won't work with other labor organizations. They can even federate, right, to make that more official if they want to. The AFL-CIO, for example, is a giant federation of smaller unions. But they want that governing body inside the union. We know that is one incentive. We know another incentive is sometimes they can't find help from a national union. And so they they feel the need to create their own because they're not not able to get that help elsewhere. But I think diving in in the long term to like, what are all the reasons that people are interested in forming independent unions, which we know they are, versus joining national unions and thinking about, you know, the pros and cons there. That's very exciting to me because, you know, I as we understand that better, we can tailor the software and everything we provide to focus on what's most important to those folks, right? And and then anything they perceive as like a con to to going through that process or to the result of that process, uh, we can focus on addressing as well. So I think the independent unionizing component here is super important. ALU, Amazon Labor Union, is the largest independent union, you know, single company union created in you know, a labor historian could probably tell me better, but we're, I think we're talking 50 plus years, right? A very long time. Large companies almost always unionize with national unions. And so seeing this come into the, to the public light, seeing the two unions that we've supported be part of a handful, right, of independent unions formed in the last six months, seeing that model uh, is very exciting to me. And I'm very excited to see how that develops and how we can. Uh, help that develop into something very pro-worker and very ethical. That's super interesting to me. I've often wondered whether, particularly in the world of tech, whether there's a a national union that's the right fit for like a firm like yours or firms, other firms out there that are entrepreneurial, startup, small. And so the the idea of an independent one makes, makes a lot of sense to me. Great to talk to you, Jamie. Anything else you want to say? Tell your friends about us. If you know someone who needs help in their workplace, you know, there's a... Hopefully they will listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think normalized unionizing, it has a long history, long loaded history. But uh, I hope with the example from our workplace, you know, I can get across. This can be a very simple, straightforward process that just creates a protected conversation between workers and their employer. I think that's super important today when everything's so polarized and so heated. There is a way to make that feel safer and more collaborative uh, in many ways. Not worry about getting fired for speaking up about what you want in your workplace. So get in touch. 
That was Jamie White. He is at unitworkers.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.